Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the Life Wisdom Podcast, a special series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Um, I also host New Books in Indian Religions. Um, today I have the pleasure of again speaking with Dr. Christopher Chapel, who is Professor of Indic and Comparative Theology at Loyola Marymount University. Uh, we've spoken about his works, um, his publications, and his ecology work elsewhere, and we will link those podcasts to the notes for this one. But today we'll have a broader conversation uh, pertaining to um, the, the wisdom he's gleaned from his work and what relevance it has to what's happening on the planet right now. So, uh, Chris, welcome to the Life Wisdom Podcast. Thank you, Raj. Always good to be in conversation. Yes, so let's just go for it. You know, what is, you know, how has your lifetime of scholarship and study prepared you to deal with or understand what's happening now? You know, what wisdom can people glean from your objects of study to help cope with, you know, uh, all that's going on around us, shall we say? Yeah, when I think of these times and Every moment is these times. We're coming out of a period of great darkness. Many people remain in a period of great darkness and great uncertainty. Many people are experiencing, as always has been, will continue to be, and will be present with us into the future, stress, anxiety, uncertainty, And we also find ourselves in a place of re-entry. And I'll bracket this context with my immediate situation in Los Angeles in 2021. And the situation is this, that we had untold death and untold death continues to ripple throughout the globe. Untold death from conflict, from disease, specifically COVID-19. And this rippling throughout the globe includes at this moment, India, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and an uncertainty among places that have been relatively untouched, including Taiwan, Japan, New Zealand, Australia, an uncertainty if will these places that had evaded mass infection will be able to have an upramp of vaccination to stave off the potential of multiple infection? Or will they be in a situation not unlike Los Angeles County some months ago? And with the ebb and the flow of disease, trauma, we also have an ebb and flow of crime and conflict trauma. And throughout the United States, people have been driving erratically and car accident deaths are at a, at a high not seen for many, many years. We're seeing likewise that people are going into overdose mode for various 
abuses of, of injectable drugs. And this is a point of great and grave concern. And then we're finding that the pot is boiling over in the Middle East right now. The pot continues to boil over, not only in places like Gaza and Israel, but also in places like Yemen, that there's this simmering difficulty of human coping that requires ongoing tending, requires our ongoing attention. The Black Lives Movement, the Asian hatred phenomenon that was just so well documented in England going back into the 80s, and now it's reared its ugly head in the United States. And this tension between polity and civility and the human proclivity toward name calling, okay, it's again returning and we need not be surprised, but what we need to do is interrogate history. And what the work of nonviolence calls us to do, what the work of Gandhi called us to do, what the work of Martin Luther King called us to do was to not be afraid, to do analysis, to participate in what Paulo Freire calls conscientization so that we can understand our personal history, we can understand our social history, name it, declare it, and then do what needs to be done in order to bring us to a place of remedy. So you mentioned in passing just now towards the end uh, this idea of nonviolence. And you mentioned Gandhi, you mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. That was the latter, of course, influenced by the former. Um, say a bit more about nonviolence and, and sort of you know where it comes from or, or where it enters your work or, or sort of how connect the dots for our listenership in terms of Indic religions. What does that mean? And you, your study of nonviolence and now what you're saying is, hey, maybe this is more than just something that some scholars working out at the ivory tower. Hey, maybe this is something that is of use to people on the ground in these tumultuous times. You know, flesh that out a little bit for us. Yes, I want to invoke Reverend James Lawson. And Reverend Lawson had been imprisoned for non-complicity in the draft in the early 1950s. He refused service in the Korean conflict, was imprisoned for being a conscientious objector to a war that he did not agree with. And when he was released from prison, he moved to Nagpur. He studied with the Gandhians at Sevagram Ashram taught school there, and he learned the strategies employed by Gandhi to undo the colonial hegemony that had been inflicted for hundreds of years around the globe by the British, by the French, by the Portuguese. And the world changed as he came back and trained Rosa Parks, trained Martin Luther King Jr., trained John Lewis and countless others, including my colleagues, Bob and Helen Singleton here in Los Angeles. And this change of paradigm rippled throughout the world and people learned to stand up 
with their voices, with their bodies. People learned to, as Shanti Davis said many, many years ago, endure the insults, take the insults, allow yourself to be beat down. And by occupying lunch counters, by walking across the Pettus Bridge, by drawing the scorn simply for being, these people change the world. Here in Los Angeles, an unintentioned moment happened with Rodney King 30 years ago when he was pulled over for a routine traffic stop, was hogtied, berated by the police who used all manner of ethnic slurs. And this was captured on videotape and went viral and reminded people of the American legacy of lynching, reminded people of how again and again and again, slavery and the memory of slavery re-enters the subconscious and then puts itself out into the realm of conscious awareness of racism and of oppression. And the work requires the person committed to nonviolence to allow the words to be said, to allow the interrogation to unfold of structures identified by Reverend James Lawson as plantation capitalism, that we are complicit in a violence of economy that binds people to a form of economic servitude that is built on unequal relationships. And what Gandhi spoke forth from the Bhagavad Gita was that we must come to see one another as fundamentally the same. Men, women, men of color, women of color, and the list goes on and on. And for too many years, we've been trained from childhood to name others as different from ourselves, to name the black person as this, that, and the other thing, to name the Asian person as this, that, and the other thing, to name men as this, that, and the other thing, to name women as this, that, and the other thing. And in this othering, we lay down the conditions for oppression. We lay down the conditions for violence. And what the yoga moment allows us to do is to pull back. What the yoga moment allows us to do is to hear the wisdom that there is more in common one to another than there is difference. And where have you gleaned these insights? Well, it's interesting because um, in childhood, I grew up in the 1960s and my sister had been at the March on Washington. She was in college and it stoked up conversations within our household in the early 1960s. 
And it prompted my parents to share that they had grown up in Sunset Towns, my father in Canada, north of Toronto, my mother in the western part of the southern tier of New York State. And black people weren't allowed to sleep overnight. In fact, my father did not see a black person until he migrated to the United States of America. He was 100 miles north of Toronto. He simply said, we had Jews, we had Irish people, but we did not have black people in Meaford, Ontario. He had Native Americans. In fact, he'd been taken in by the Ojibwe tribe on Bruce Peninsula the summer after his first year at University of Toronto. And he recalled his amazement seeing a black person in Niagara Falls, New York. And my mother rather humbly shared that when she started at the University at Buffalo, at the State Teachers College, that a black girl sat next to her in class. And my mother said, you can't sit there. And the woman said, I sure can. And they felt, I think, a little bit embarrassed and a little bit um, called to be part of the change. And where I lived in rural Orleans County, New York State, we had black labor come up in buses every April, May to start planting. And they would stay through September, October to do the harvesting. And I remember asking my teachers, why don't the kids in the labor camp come to school with us? And they said, oh, they have a shorter school year in Florida. And my mother would take us both to the Tuscarora Reservation and to the labor camps. No plumbing, a bare light bulb in each of the cells where the families would live. It was, it was utter, utter poverty, both in the labor camps and on the reservation. And, and we would bring our clothes once we had outgrown them. And we lived side by side with farm workers, yet we were well-housed, middle-class, educated, and this sort of awakened something within me as a young child, eight, nine, 10 years old. And then at the age of 13, I saw my first Mexican-American who was actually Cesar Chavez. And it was the strikes against lettuce of the late 1960s. And I went downtown with my best friend and we marched with Cesar Chavez. We went to the people of Wegman's grocery store, Danny Wegman, and said, we want you to participate in the boycott of lettuce, the boycott of grapes. And they listened. Okay. And we got involved with draft counseling through the Religious Society of Friends, the, the Quakers. We sat and bore witness while I was in high school as those arrested for destroying draft files in the federal building in Rochester were on trial. And they put the entire Vietnam War on trial. People who had learned from the wisdom of Gandhi, people who had learned from the example of James Lawson and Rosa Parks. And at that moment, I became committed to a life of nonviolence. And within a couple of years, I had uh, started university. I started studying 
the Bhagavad Gita my very first semester freshman year in Sanskrit. During that same year, I learned uh, a traditional ashram and uh, saw this marriage between civil disobedience, the practice of yoga, and social uplift, sarvodaya, as it's called in Sanskrit, and have really dedicated my energies toward this work for many decades now. So, in so far, you're you're speaking about the ways in which these teachings might be able to help people address the current moment or the, the current tapestry uh, of, of 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 tumult and transformation and, and transition in human human history. Um, there's a great deal of anger, and there's a great deal of hostility, and for the sake of conversation, you know, um, with respect, how do you respond to this very human idea of, you know, um, to everything, turn, turn, there is a season, you know, a time to plant, a time to reap, you know, a time to kill, a time to heal. And the, um, the extent to which people are called to fight fire with fire. Now, I'm sure the audience might suspect, and certainly Chris knows that I'm posing this question for the sake of conversation, not to critique his his obvious wisdom. Yeah, I'm again drawn to terminology from the Bhagavad Gita, which talks about lopa and krodha. And lopa goes to the root of capitalism. We want more stuff. We want to acquire. We want to prove our worth by acquiring wealth. And how did this happen in America? It came to be through the plantation. It came to be through the labor of others, number one. Number two is Crota. And I'm sort of flooded with images of the assault on the US Capitol on January 6, 2021. And the tremendous anger of these seemingly disenfranchised white people who were forcing their way in an attempt to accomplish a violent overthrow of government. And that yearning to have position and that anger to grab it if one feels that it's being denied that's the toxic combination. And it's always been with us as human beings. My elder sister is a primatologist, and she reminds us of the chimpanzee. So calm, so placid, except that rare moment where the chimpanzees just rise up with anger and bring violence upon one another. So what's the remedy to this human condition that at its ground, I mean, in yoga philosophy, we are propelled forward by avidya, asmita, raga, devesha, abhinavesha, which is a toxic mix of flat out ignorance, of egotism, of overweening desire, of just dismissive hatred, 
and this desire to go forward and do more and more and more. So that's one way of looking at it. And the, and the Buddhist way is that we're just filled with delusion, moha, krodha, anger, and hatred, dvesha. And so what do we do? What we have to do is, first of all, acknowledge that this is at the simmering ground of human desire and then train ourselves. And this is the universal application, uh, which is both personal and social. The universal application of ethics requires that we call up nonviolence, requires that we call up truthfulness, requires that we call up honesty, requires that we call up faithfulness, requires that we call up our innate capacity to say enough. And again, ahimsa, satya, asteya, brahmacharya, aparigraha. Okay, enough is enough. We don't need any more. And to hold to those values grounded in nonviolence and take the necessary steps holistically to plant seeds for a better future for ourselves and for society. You mentioned in passing the Bhagavad Gita. For those listening, the two terms that Chris was talking about were, were lobha, roughly greed, and krodha, roughly anger. Um, it's um, beautifully ironic, of course, and so many have noted this, that Krishna's counsel to Arjuna is so that he can face this enemy. He can, you know, get up, Utishta, arise, and go and do your duty. So for the sake of just a thought experiment, are we in a time? Are we, are we, are we in the middle of a Bhagavad Gita? Are we, are we in the middle of a time when um, 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 all of the upayas have been exhausted, when uh, there are forces at play, there, 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 are, there are people ill-qualified and self-absorbed who want to rule the world and need to be put in their place in some sense? I mean, to what extent... Uh, I think we both understand the Gita quite metaphorically and richly at that. But to what extent um, are we called to a time similar to the moment described in this great conflict between the Kauravas and the Pandavas? Yeah, I think of this moment as a great test of democracy. I think of this moment as a truth-telling of making reality fit with principles. And the reality is that the human condition has been driven historically and personally by desire and greed and by ego. And that one of the benefits of at least a constitutional democracy is that it guarantees a transfer of power periodically. And this transfer of power takes place both at the legislative level and at the executive level. And with this turnover, there can be, there not always is proof that it's going to work forever, but there can be a renewal of a value. There can be a renewal of optimism. And one would like to think that our 
higher angels will call us forward. But as we know in the Dred Scott decision in the um, 19th century, that countervailing forces are always present. So constant vigil is required to protect the dignity of the person, to enable the uplift of society. And certainly within my lifetime, I have seen the effectiveness of the voice of nonviolence. I have seen the end of the Vietnam War. I have seen the end of the Cold War. I have seen the averting of conflict, a de-escalation moment happens again and again and again. If we look at what happened with the undoing of the Marcos regime in the Philippines, if we look at the instance of comparing, the middle of the 20th century saw so many tens of millions of people killed in warfare and that thankfully has not repeated itself, at least not yet. And with clear thinking and with good information distributed widely, I find hope that the nonviolent narrative will eventually carry the day. And yes, we are in times of darkness. And yes, we are in a mode of rebuilding and re-entering, hopefully informed by wisdom and experience. And so for those who are very much aware that they are in a time of darkness, that we are in a time of darkness, for those experiencing a variety of um, impediments, uh, feeling despair, feeling hopeless, having very practical issues, being demoralized, being discouraged. And for folks who are very much aware that these are dark times and and life does not look um, <laughs> so great at the moment, how do they proceed? What's the first step? What's, what's, what's the way out? You know, wh- how, what does one do? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of a sixth century text I love being irrelevant or seemingly irrelevant, but it's a wisdom podcast. So where do we get our wisdom? Sometimes it's old. And there's this sixth century text that I'm translating in group, refining uh, our translation, and it's called the Yoga Bindu. And it was written by a scholar, composed by a scholar. It's a song uh, called Hari Bhadra. And he gives three pieces of advice. One, honor the elders. And in India, there are so many multiple avenues for celebration and for memorializing and acknowledging. I mean, every couple of weeks, there's a new holiday to be observed, even just the holiday of the the full moon, the new moon, the half moon, and on a micro level, the sunrise and the sunset, all of this is to be celebrated. And this text gives very explicit instructions for how to honor the elders who have passed. And as I have 
some years ago now, more than a decade, gone through the passing of my own parents, I find great solace in remembering their gifts and remembering their wisdom and as with my teachers. So many of my teachers have passed. And part of my job as a teacher myself is to honor their good work. Part of my job as a human is to honor the good work of my parents, to be a good teacher to myself, for myself to be a good parent. So this cultivation of tenderness toward elders is point one. Point two is... And here, the, um, the beauty of this particular thinker is that he talks in generalities. And I, I find it a little bit difficult to find good words because I'm going to sound hyper-religious with some of the words that are available to me. But uh, he says, just develop a rhythm of, of piety. And he actually uses the word japa. And what I want to do to bring this from the 6th century into the 21st century, okay, we have a 1,500-year gap here, but to find words to repeat that are auspicious words. And in India, from time immemorial, there has been a practice of saying the same syllable 108 times. Probably the most well-known is the phrase Om Shanti, that if we can just, and, and we can even use the word, the Hebrew word Shalom, the related Arabic word um, uh, Islam, okay, Salam is, is the word for peace, and even the English word, the Germanic word peace, okay, and the Sanskrit word shanti, if we can just have a language that brings us again and again to a place that will calm ourselves down, um, a very popular modern way to do this is just breathe, just take a breath, and to cultivate a place of peace. And it could be by taking a moment in the morning. It could be by taking a moment in the middle of the day. It could be taking a moment at the end of day. And five times a day, the call to prayer, the Buddhist constant rejoinder, bring yourself to a place of awareness, but creating within oneself that mood of calm. That's the second practice. Honor the elders, create a mood of calm. And then the third, and again, it's left wide open by this particular author, Shastra. And Shastra is good teaching. For many people in the modern period, it's reading the poetry of Mary Oliver. It's reading the poetry of Sharon Olds. For traditional Christians, it'll be reading scripture. For Muslims, it'll be recalling that Islamic surah. And for the Hindu writ large, it will be remembering the lessons of the Bhagavad Gita, of the Mahabharata, of the Ramayana. And in a sense, 
again, writ large, it's telling the story. Let the story be told. Your story, which is just one particular micro story of the big human story, which means pay attention to Shakespeare. In my household growing up, my mother, who had studied Latin for eight years and her favorite play was Julius Caesar, she would just give each of her six children little zingers. And the zinger that she gave me was, beware of, uh, of Brutus. He has a lean and hungry look. And or maybe it was Cassius. I don't remember. But it was just, you know, let literature be your guide. So these are the three places that we've been urged to go to for 1,500 years one, respecting the wisdom of the elders. Two, finding a rhythm whereby we establish ourselves in peace. And three, let literature guide us forward. You know, it seems to me that a life well lived, or at least um, one that dances with wisdom, has a foot in tradition and a foot in innovation because. If you are stuck in the past, that's not a use to anyone. Uh, nevertheless, if you throw the baby out with the bathwater and discard that which has stood the test of time, one of the things that comes to mind is I say, you know, the stories that we hear, these ancient stories, I mean, part of part of my work involves, a large part of my work actually involves um, ancient Indian narratives. And I say, it's not that there was a shortage of creativity, Right. These stories last because they're still useful. They're still serving important functions. They've stood the test of time. Nevertheless, when I teach a story about Shiva or Ganesha or or or, or the goddess, there certainly might be wireless or texting or Facebook in the story. You know, uh, the, the, the wisdom lives, and so much of what, in my view, comes from these ancient texts isn't tied to. A dogmatic view whatsoever. The idea that you come up with, you know, japa, well, someone may say, well, japa, you're using a technical term from um, classical Hinduism from ancient India that means the recitation of mantra that's typically initiated by a guru on a mala, a rosary of a certain number of beads at a certain muhurta, this, 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 this. And then what you're saying, how's that different from paying a whole bunch of money to go see Tony Robbins, who says, take this affirmation, whatever it is, I am unstoppable, I am unstoppable, I am unstoppable, I am and recite it for an hour a day. Are these really so different? Or are we splitting hairs? And so, you know, it's it's really, um, you know, you're, you're not preaching, but uh, what I was about to say is you're preaching to the choir in that it's clear to me that wisdom uh, exists in, in so many ancient texts and ancient traditions, and yet it needs to be uh, revived. It needs to be identified. It needs to be adapted. It, it needs to be grafted to the soil of this modern world. And, and this is how religions of function, uh, being renovated age after age, otherwise the house will fall over. So that's it's deeply resonant what you're saying. Um, as we're coming fairly close to the end of our time together today, what else comes to mind that you'd like to share with folks? Yeah, I would like to also share, building on your invocation of mantra and japa, wisdom from two people, 
one, an elder from a Yoga Bharati convention held up in Silicon Valley, where I was sort of the lone white guy in the midst of people from India who were sharing their good wisdom. And one of the elders said, when we do mantra, first we labor, and then we just listen. First we labor, and then we just listen. And then I'm also going to lift up a colleague, Kim Harris, who has spent decades taking freedom songs to school children and to elders all over the country. And how did people survive? The onslaught of the police, they sang. These anthems of freedom, we hear, we voice, and they inspire us to keep moving forward. And as she comes forth again and again with this amazing music, I often think, oh, is this from long ago? And I'll ask her and she say, oh, no, 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 that was just written last year. And the innovation, the turn of phrase, the lilt of a song such as we shall overcome. Okay, this is a form of mantra. This is a statement of unity. And this is a statement of equality. And the buzzword or the buzz phrase now is DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay, these are noble goals. And all through society, whether it be in the corporate world or the educational world, people are seeing that we must open our eyes to each of these and make space in our hearts and in our lives for diversity, for equity, and inclusion. And out of the darkness of the reverse, a new world will dawn. Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you. It's always a pleasure and an honor to share time, Raj. For those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Chris, uh, Christopher Chapel, um, who's Professor of Indic and Comparative Theology at Loyola Marymount University. Uh, we've, of course, been talking about um, um, the profound wisdom found in ancient Indian texts, that are not nearly as foreign at, uh, as they might appear at first glance. And most importantly, we've been talking about uh, ways in which to move forward um, and triumph over these tumultuous times. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, um, keep listening, and, and keep striving forward. Take care.